0: Welcome to It's Not a Crisis. I am your host, Doran Wallach. I'm an entrepreneur, a mother of two, a wife, and a 40-something trying to figure out what is happening in this decade. Why is no one talking about it? I created this podcast to help women in their late 30s and 40s to figure out what is going on in our mind, body, soul, and life. We may laugh, we may cry, we may get frustrated, but most importantly, My goal is to make this next chapter of life positive. I'm also full of my own questions, and I'm here to go on this journey with you. So let's do it together. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and the host Welcomed new listeners, and I've never done that before. So if you're a new listener, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that we impress you today that you'll listen to other shows. I'm actually kind of excited about today's topic, which seems a little strange. But it's something, again, as usual, that I constantly have on my show. It's something that we're not talking about. And today we are going to talk about our aging bladders because they are aging and we are having issues. And um, I have never stopped to ask my doctor the questions that I have. And I've found that among women that I've talked to, it almost becomes a joke that we Pee when we do a jumping jack or laugh, or, you know, we talk about um, UTIs that are happening all the time and we don't know why because we're not having that much sex and, you know, all these jokes. But I think there are serious things that need to be addressed. Frequent urination. By the way, I would like to, to preface this entire podcast with I have had frequent urination my entire life. And when I was pregnant, it was no different. It is no different right now at this stage of life. And we'll, also mention something else in, in a few minutes when I introduce our wonderful guest. Dr. Cavaller is the medical director of Total Urology Care of New York. Dr. Cavaller is certified in both urology, men and women, and female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, also known as urogynecology. She is the author of A Seat on the Aisle, Please, which I love that title. That is such a great title because I always have to sit in an aisle no matter where I am. The Essential Guide to Urinary Tract Problems, Including Urinary Tract Infections, Incontinence, Pelvic Organ Prolapse, and Interstitial Cystitis and Menopause. I hopefully got that right, Doctor Cavler. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> we had to look up that word beforehand, and I—I I, I don't know if I botched it, but um, no, you we were great. It was okay, like, okay, like a good. professional. Okay, okay, perfect. So, Doctor Kavlar is a very well-known doctor in New York for what she does. Um, and my doctor referred her when I had asked, you know, who is the best, and I, and she said, you know, you've got to call Doctor Kavler. and I said. That's really funny because many years ago, in my early 20s, I went to her and I can remember vividly, I went for frequent urination. And I can remember vividly, like, I had a pee in a toilet in your office. So like sort of like in front of people. I don't know if I was in front of people, but it was like a a, a portable toilet, <laughs> and anyway, we did a bunch of tests. And I remember having to drink a lot of water, and then um, I, you did an ultrasound while the water it was in my stomach, which was unbearable. But you know, I know you had to do it, and then I think what ended up happening is you told me I had um, I had urgency when my bladder was half full, and I was sent to do um. Physical therapy, and and I was 22, 21. So at the time, I really didn't take it seriously. I was like, I'm not going to like vag physical therapy. This is, I went into one appointment mm-hmm. and walked in there, and I was so I like, I just saw you know, they were, you know, they put me in a gown and I was like, oh my God, what's happening? What am I doing here? And I, and I don't remember, I think I left with a couple of Kegel exercises, but I didn't take it seriously then because I was a kid. But anyway, I thought that was a funny story. I remember it so clearly. And um, when, when, when Dr. Zaychuk said your name, all these memories came back (laughs) to me. Um, And, and, you know, listen, it's, it's a joke among my friends and my family. They make fun of um, how often I urinate, but the reality of this is incontinence, frequent urination, UTIs, all of these things, it, it's embarrassing. Uh, you know, I don't, I actually get anxiety before I go to theater or a movie or a, a concert where my seat is in the middle row. And I, before I fly, I actually, um, this is also too much information for everybody, but kind of funny. I flew on a plane once it didn't have a bathroom and about, and only an hour flight about, I don't know. 20 minutes into the flight, I looked at my husband and I said, I have to pee. And he said, okay, well, I don't know what to tell you. I was like, no, 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 no. I really I have to pee. He goes, honey, yeah, I don't know what to tell you, just don't think about it, which is like the most annoying thing ever. And I basically tapped the pilot on the shoulder and I said... Uh, I have to pee. And he said, "Uh, "Okay, would you like me to land the plane? And I was like, oh, my God, no. You know, there's six other people on this flight. I said, no, no, please don't land the plane. And he said, well, if we ever have this issue, we pee in a trash can. So I turn around, and we can barely stand on this plane. I go to the back of the plane. I see a trash can. I, I make an announcement to everybody on the plane. I said, I would like everyone to know that I'm going to pee in this trash can. And just keep your head forward. <laughs> and this woman and her dad were in the back holding up their jacket for me, which was very nice. Um, and when I got off the plane... I remember this, man unfortunately, I ended up being a, a friend of my father's that I discovered later because he said, I was getting back on this plane, and my dad said, oh, my daughter has a problem, you know, with her bladder. And and he goes, oh, I know. I was on a plane once when she peed in the trash can. I was like, oh, that was you? Was very embarrassing. So anyway— I know how embarrassing this is for women. And while we can laugh about it, it, it's, it's a real problem. And the reason I reached out to you is I recently met a woman through podcasting, and uh, she said to me, I'm going to a doctor because I can, I pee everywhere. I, I, I can't go anywhere. I pee on the side of the street. I, I, I mean, it's so frequent. And I said, you know what? That is a topic that we have to talk about. So mm-hmm. I'm sorry. That was a very long intro into what we're talking about today. But I thought it was relevant.
1: Yeah, it is. And what's funny and tw- at 20 is not funny at 40. It's even less funny at 60. And it is really life threatening in at 80. So it is not a trivial topic, although it's you know it's it's cringeworthy, but it's also funny it, until it's not.
0: Absolutely. Um so I'd love to start with incontinence. Um I, I just I'd love to know what causes it because I think there are a lot of myths. I I this is the common conversation I have with my friends. I, you know, I had three kids vaginally. And so of course I have incontinence and I'm like, I had two C-sections and I still, you know, pee when I laugh sometimes. So um, I think at our age, what is it? You know, what causes it? What are the different issues that cause it? Um, Clearly it's a little bit of a mystery to a lot of us.
1: Okay. So first of all, incontinence is the involuntary loss of urine, which means that you basically urinate into your into your underwear or on the floor, if you're rushing to the bathroom to pull down your pants and you can't make it, that's incontinence. So it doesn't matter how much comes out, it's still the same term. We use the term urinary incontinence. And there are two types of urinary incontinence. There's stress incontinence having nothing to do with emotional stress. It has to do with pressure. That's the cough, laugh, sneeze, jumping jack problem that generally occurs after childbirth. And that is treated with either exercises and strengthening um, bulking agents into the sphincter or surgery. And then there's urgency incontinence, which is where you get the urge and you can't make it to the bathroom, which is treated with medications, Botox injections, and nerve stimulators. So they're totally different conditions. They present very differently and they're treated completely differently. Botox
0: injections. Well, that wasn't around when
1: I had it. How How does that work? So urgency incontinence is the, where you have the urge and you can't get to the bathroom. That's usually accompanied with frequency of urination, urgency of urination, waking up a lot at night, and then at the end of the spectrum is the inability to make it to the bathroom. The reason that happens is because the bladder, is, which is a muscle, spasms. It's like an arrhythmia. And without any input from the brain, which tells the bladder where it is and what to do, the bladder gets spasms. So you could be you know, hanging out with a bunch of friends, drinking beer or wine, and all of a sudden your bladder spasms and you, you, you feel like you're going to wet your pants. Botox is a muscle relaxant and it can be injected into the bladder through a scope to relax the muscle so it's not overactive. The other term that we use for urgency incontinence is overactive bladder, and that's how Botox works.
0: I actually remember I went on medication, and and what I found the problem with medication for me was it made me thirsty, so I drank more. And I peed more, right? Uh, is that is that? I mean, this was so many years ago. I don't know if that's still the same issue, but uh, that that was my problem with medication.
1: The medications can be drying. There are different types of medications now, so some of them are drying, some of them aren't. The more sort of tried and true medications tend to cause dry mouth and a little bit of constipation in some patients, which can barely be, like you said, counterproductive because then you wind up drinking more. But the the important factor is that if you have stress incontinence, the cough, laugh, sneeze problem, and you want Botox, it's not going to work for you. You have to have the treatment that's going to take care of whichever condition you suffer from. And I think sometimes patients don't realize that. They're like, I just want an operation to fix it, or I don't want an operation, I want to take medication, but it depends on the type of incontinence that you have. That's what's going to dictate your treatment. Uh, Stress incontinence is more related to laxity of the pelvic muscles. So pregnancy, childbirth, genetics, uh, chronic constipation, chronic cough, all contribute to the development of stress incontinence, and it often presents in women younger than urgency incontinence, which is really like an aging problem. And that has nothing to do with childbearing.
0: And does that have to do with the bladder aging? What, it, how is that related to aging?
1: So urgency incontinence, which is where you can't make it to the bathroom, and frequency, urgency, getting up at night—that whole kind of, you know, constellation of bladder issues—is related to aging because as the brain ages, as the brain sort of deteriorates, the control that the brain has over the bladder is somewhat compromised. So a lot of neurologic disorders also present with urinary incontinence and its urgency incontinence, of which aging is the most common sort of neurologic demise. So that's why we see it with aging. And what about hormones? Does that relate to either one of these? So hormones are complicated because hormones menopause occurs in middle-aged people. So a lot of conditions that are related to the aging of the body, including the aging of the nervous system and the aging of the brain present at the same time. So menopause and bladder conditions present around the same time. So we tend to think that menopause is the reason that we're having these issues. There is some suggestion that the hormone reduction in hormones and lack of estrogen makes bladder symptoms worse. But the problem is that taking hormones like estrogen through a patch or a pill doesn't always help the bladder problems. If you're going to use estrogen for your bladder, it's more effective if it's delivered intravaginally, very local to, these, to the receptors that are in the vagina and right near the bladder. So the, the long, that's a long answer to say that there may be some relationship between menopause and the bladder, but there's also just a relationship between aging, the menopause, menopause and the bladder. Mm, that makes sense.
0: What what do you do when someone comes to you with one of these issues? What what are the steps that you take? Because I think I think it would be great for women to hear that because I think it's kind of a scary thing to address and to take that step to actually go see a doctor.
1: The first thing is um finding a doctor. Right? How do you know who to go to? Because certainly there are, are urologists that have no understanding or appreciation of these conditions because urology, although it's a very small specialty that mostly deals with the urinary tract and the male genitalia, a lot of the focus is on the cancer issues in urology, kidney cancer, bladder cancer, and prostate cancer Most mostly. So if you see a prostate cancer urologist and you're talking about your urinary problems, he or she may not be that well-versed in what your options are. So you want to make sure that you're seeing somebody who actually has some understanding of the condition, appreciation, and interest in treating it. There are gynecologists that specialize in this. There are urogynecologists who are gynecologists with a specialty interest in urologic issues. And every community has doctors who are interested in this area, and that's who you want to see. So once you find a doctor that you're comfortable with, the next step is going to see them without the fear that you're going to have some horrible procedure done. Because I think that one of the limitations of seeing a urologist is you think you're going to have a a, a procedure done. And usually in the first visit, I would say always on the first visit, you shouldn't have anything invasive done. You first um, want to just, you know, express your concerns, talk about your history, have an exam. Sometimes uh, ultrasounds are done, all non-invasive everything that should be done on the first visit is non-invasive. And the physical exam is in a woman is a pelvic exam. And in a man, unfortunately, it's a genital exam, including a rectal, which most men are not that happy about. Um, but women, we always do a pelvic exam because that's where the urologic organs are. So I think that the, the sort of to dial down the anxiety over the visit is is just to know that nothing invasive would ever be done on the first visit. Oh, and then we always check the urine, of course, right? We always have to look at the urine.
0: Not to make this about me again, but I think I have stress and urgency. <laughs> do you, right. Is that
1: possible? That's, <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. That's called mixed incontinence. And most women have, have a combination. And the question always is like, where do you start, right? Do you, how How do you start? If you know you got all this stuff going on, where do you start? And most of the time, we can start with what's called behavior modification and Kegel exercises, which you know, which have their their place. They're not the be all and end all, but they have their place in this. So, behavior modification is three things: fluid management, timed voiding, and some sort of pelvic floor exercises. So fluid management means that you drink fluids according to the needs that your of your body that your body dictates. So there's this sort of you know this sort of wisdom this kind of sense that everybody should drink eight glasses of water a day, but not everybody needs eight glasses of water a day and you don't need eight glasses of water every day. Sometimes you need more, sometimes you need less. It depends on what you've eaten and your exercise level and the weather and You know, if you're in New York City, you know, heated apartments where it's so dry, you may need more water. So water consumption should be managed according to the needs of your body and the activities of the day. So you don't want to sit and drink a cup of coffee and then get on the subway because you're going to get stuck, right? You want to manage your fluids appropriately. A lot of people come in with like a giant like liter of water because they're on a diet of some sort and they are complaining that they're urinating all the time. And I'm like, you know, you can't drink like that because it's got to go somewhere. They're like, no, no, my trainer or my nutritionist told me I need to drink all this. Well, you're not going to lose weight drinking all that water. You're going to urinate a lot drinking all that water. So you got to cut down on the fluids because otherwise I I can't, there's nothing I can do about that. So that's fluid management. Time avoiding is pretty intuitive, right? You go to the bathroom before you leave the house, you go to the bathroom before you leave the restaurant, Um, you try and, you know, prevent that moment when you're going to have to race to the bathroom and then the Kegel exercises can work because if you feel like you have to urinate and you're in an awkward place, you can do your contractions for a second or two, and then you'll suppress the urge to go, which will give you time to make it to the bathroom. So those are the three behavior modifications that you start with.
0: And you mentioned, um, one thing I discovered with myself for years and years and years, I had chronic constipation, um, until I started taking magnesium and I tried everything before that. And, um, that helped my bladder tremendously, uh, which I never, I never realized I should, I mean, you should, if you think about anatomy, it makes sense that they would be related, but I I don't think a lot of people think about it, you know?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a really good point, um, constipation and bowel hygiene, for lack of a better word, is really, really important. And that's a whole other topic, right? Constipation is its own universe. But constipation is not just like making a bowel movement every day because everybody's body is different and not everybody makes a bowel movement every day. So again, it's a matter of knowing your body, knowing what feels normal for you. And how to keep it healthy with your diet and exercise and sleep and all the things that keep you in homeostasis. So, although constipation is a huge, huge issue, it also should be recognized that not everybody makes a bowel movement every single day, and you shouldn't force it, or you're going to, you know, wind up on laxatives your whole life.
0: Right. And so, when you're funny, when you're talking about time management, with when you're somebody like me who's had this my entire life, I really have that down. Like I, I know. You know, days that I don't drink. I drink decaf coffee. I don't drink regular coffee. But I know the days where like I cannot if I'm on a long car ride or whatever it is, I like I drink absolutely nothing. If I'm going to an event, Uh, you know, you know, people always go to before theater, they go out and have like drinks and a great dinner before they go see a show on Broadway that is not me. I sit sit there without even water.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, I'll tell patients there are people who can't do the, you know, the, the dinner in a show, it's just not going to work. You can't eat a big meal and drink and then go sit for two and a half hours. So it's unfortunate, but that's part of the behavior modification is knowing your body and knowing what you can what you're, what you can sustain and what's going to make you enjoy the the show. And those are things that are adaptive. You can do that without going on medication and having injections into your bladder and things that are really kind of dramatic. the, the less you do medically, the better.
0: Okay. So I actually have a uh, just a quick little question here. What's a normal amount of times to get up at night to pee?
1: So the normal frequency, what we consider normal frequency of urination is eight times in a 24 hour period, which usually breaks down to like every three hours during the day and like once maybe or twice a night when we medicate people. So if somebody comes in with urgency and frequency and they're not making it to the bathroom, and they're wetting their pants, and we want to medic- you know, give them medication, I will tell them, if you're going every two hours during the day and getting up no more than twice a night and you're dry, that's the goal that we can reasonably attain. Because our lives tend to work in two hour intervals. So if you think about movies, meals, rest stops, uh, theater productions, they tend to be about two hour intervals. So, although that may be more than the average person urinates, we consider that a functional interval. So, four to six times a night is not good. Well, that's an, I mean that's a good question because it depends on when that happens. So, if you can sleep let's say from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. and then you're up at 5:30 and six and 6:30, like you know, that's a lot of times that you're getting up at night, but you're still getting a stretch of sleep. So, the idea that you need eight hours of sleep uninterrupted, that's ideal. Like that would be great. But I don't know how realistic it is for everybody because a lot of people have sleep disorders and a lot of people have anxiety and other factors that keep them from sleeping, especially now with COVID people are not sleeping well because they're not that tired during the day because they're not as active as they used to be. So getting up four to six times a night means that you're not getting enough sleep. And that's not, that's not great. That's not really healthy. Disruptive. Yeah. Um, Very disruptive.
0: Just going back to stress incontinence, uh, before somebody is able to get to a doctor, so so if, if you do find that you leak a little bit when you're at the gym or you're, you know, doing whatever, what do you usually suggest to women prior to being treated? Is it like wearing a pad? I mean, I don't want to start—women in their 40s don't want to start wearing Depends— Right.
1: But <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because so they hygiene care, yeah. They have all these ads now, um, on TV for like you know, sexy underwear.
0: I love the sexy depends. You're like, no, 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 no. still not sexy, still not <laughs> right. sexy. So like, no matter you what know, little decoration you put on there, they're not sexy, not <laughs> good,
1: right? And it's really funny because I'm thinking, you know, I'm sitting there watching this and I'm like, hello, we don't need that. Like, this is not the answer, the answer right. is not to have a pad for your thong. The answer is not to have incontinence. So if you're at the point where you're thinking about a pad and you're a 45 year old woman, you've got to go to the doctor and get treated. And if it's stress incontinence, you know, you can have, there's, there's, the surgery is great. The surgeries really, really work and you're done. Like that is done. You are Cured, and I don't know why you would be a 45 year old woman who doesn't go to the gym, or if she goes to the gym, she's wearing pads um, instead of getting it corrected. All right now, now and talking about surgery, wh- what is that procedure like? There's a surgery for uh, stress incontinence called a sling. It's called a midurethral sling surgery because what it does is it creates a support. It's it's actually the placement of a small strip of nylon. Mesh that goes under the urethra and acts as a support. So when you jump around or you cough or you laugh, the urethra can compress against the backboard of the strong material, the walls of the urethra come together, and no urine can squirt out. It takes about 15 minutes to do. It's done in the hospital with a light sedation. It's in and out in one day, and it's usually like two or three days of recovery, and then you're done and you don't have to, you have st- stitches that have to dissolve over time. So no sex for about three weeks. But other than that, you know, you're back to all your regular activities and you're not leaking anymore. The pads are gone. And is it painful? Not really. I mean, it's a little uncomfortable, but not painful. Very, very, very little pain for the, for the result that you get. It's like the, one of the only things we could do in medicine that is curative and it's immediate, like within you know, within the time you wake up and you're in the recovery room and you go to the bathroom and you start work. you know, going home, if you sneeze or you cough or you laugh, you don't leak. It's amazing. It's efficient and it's effective. Interesting. I might be calling you for that one. Um, I'm not quite there yet. (laughs) It doesn't help the urgency problem. So for women who have both, they often will need a sling and Botox, a sling and medication, and that'll keep them dry. And then they're fine. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, that's so I, I
0: you know what's interesting to me is that that so much has happened in in all the years
1: since I came to you. Oh, this um, is like a this is like a thirty-three billion dollar a year industry. I mean, if you go right. to any pharmacy in New York City or anywhere probably in the whole country, there's an entire aisle. It's probably the biggest aisle in the pharmacy dedicated to nothing but incontinence pads. And right. it's just amazing to me how little is understood about a condition that affects so many people both male and female young and old and yet you know nobody really talks about it or well, you know, right and
0: this is why women think that they have to live with a pad in their underwear or cutely decorated underwear from depends right <laughs> so i'm so happy that you're you're saying this what um what would require a more extensive surgery like on the bladder
1: so for incontinence there's that's it there's, there, yeah. there's just a sling for stress incontinence. For urgency incontinence, besides Botox, which we do in the office, there is something called a nerve stimulator or a neuromodulator, which is like a pacemaker. It's a small battery with a wire attached to it that can be implanted into the lower back to control the nerves from the spinal cord into the bladder. And that's done for a maybe 5 to 10% Of women who and men who suffer with considerable and really life-altering overactive bladder. It's also used for bowel incontinence, which is like the worst thing. I mean, having Mm -hmm. bowel incontinence is is like the most humiliating experience. I can't even imagine. It's almost like Crohn's with Crohn's, right? With people with these irritable bowel and and inflammatory bowel conditions, often suffer miserably with these, these these. you know, sort of life altering symptoms. So the nerve stimulator works for both bowel incontinence and bladder incontinence. So for women who just are not responding to anything else, that's what we have in our armamentarium. For women who have prolapse, which is where the pelvic organs descend into the vaginal canal, so you feel like a lump in the vagina, those surgeries are more extensive but that's not incontinence that presents with a lump like a you feel like a baby is coming out of your vagina. Oh, yeah, That's not good.
0: Yeah. No, that's not good at all. Right. Right. And so and, and, and and another <laughs> host of problems. To, I to mean, worry you about know, being a older. woman is just so sexy. <laughs>
1: it's so sexy. I know, it's like <laughs> I know it's so it's so funny because as women get older, like all sorts of stuff goes on with their vaginas and most women in their 20s and 30s don't think that much about their vaginas. And all of a sudden, you know, it's 60 or 50. It ha- it takes on this whole life of, of a world that they never really thought about. I get yeah. so
0: angry at my husband, because I'm like, anytime something's going on down there, whether it's in my period or whatever it is, I'm like, do you realize like the only thing that you have coming out of your body is something that gives you pleasure? I'm like, that's like, we, we have all the stuff.
1: And you have orgasms. I know, but you know, as a urologist, I treat a lot of men and they have right. they have their own set of problems. They have a prostate, which is just a miserable organ. It's just a miserable organ. But that doesn't they, usually happen until later, right? It happens later, but it's never, yeah. it's always too quickly. And the other thing is that their problems, um, you know, really are, are very, I guess they're equally as ego invested because when those erections start to... Fade, it's pretty hard on them. They don't do well with it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure.
0: I actually uh, just did an episode on um, sexual dysfunction in women. So, again, you hear about erectile dysfunction, but you
1: don't talk about female uh, dis- sexual dysfunction. Well, the dysfunction stuff that we're often... talking about, the incontinence, prolapse, pain syndromes, urinary tract infections, all the physical, physical if issues and ailments that women experience severely, severely impact their sexual pleasure and sexuality, which is why anybody who's in this field has to deal with sexual issues. Because if you get an infection every time you have sex, that has to affect your sex life, right? This
0: is a good place to bring in one of my listener questions, actually, before we go to UTIs, which will be our next topic. One of my listeners asked... And I wanted to respond with good for you, but I thought that would be inappropriate. So she's going to hear this anyway. She said that she has moments of incontinence after a longer than usual night of sex. And is that normal? I guess was her question.
1: Yeah. I mean, if the bladder, it's like, like being sort of traumatized for lack of a better word during sexual activity, it can spasm and you can have urgency for, you know, a little while after, but, but it it's not harmful. It doesn't matter, except that it may be unpleasant. But a lot of that is positional and, and you can try and adjust for those things positionally. But it's not, there is, there's not much you can, the bladder is pretty resilient. Like you can't really do that much to the bladder during sex. That's not going to recover. Interesting. So
0: maybe it's related to something she already has anyway. Yeah. And then my other question is if you're told that you need bladder surgery, is there success in trying physical therapy first or does it just not matter because you're going to have to do it down the
1: road anyway? I know that that obviously is dependent. No, no, but... that's a good question. That's actually a really good question because I hear this all the time. So there there are two schools of thought. It, it depends on on your personality. There are people who think that they want to get things done early. They want to get their situation corrected early because they want to they, they enjoy it for longer. Um, and then there are other people who want to wait until they absolutely have to do something because the longer they wait, the better technology, the better you know the options are because we're constantly coming out with new treatments and new materials. So it's a very personal decision. Um, of course, if you go to a surgeon, they're going to tell you to do the surgery. If you go to a physical therapist, they're going to tell you to do physical therapy. But, you know, it's not cancer. So it, it's a you You make the decision yourself. You you can't have somebody make that decision for you. And I always say to patients, the way you kind of assess these things is you think, if I'm lying on a gurney, staring at the ceiling, going into the operating room, thinking to myself, why am I here? You're probably not ready for surgery.
0: So. Uh recently, I have had a few conversations with friends. This is not happening to me, but a few of my friends, and and, and so I wanted to bring this up because I don't even know if there's a relation, that are having a lot of consistent UTIs. One of my friends actually just told me she's been, she I think she's been on antibiotics, you know, four times in the past three months with UTIs. And then another friend had said the same thing. And, I, you know, UTIs have a whole, I think we learned, I think when we were younger, UTIs were like, you know, from sex, like maybe a tampon or not peeing after sex. You know, we didn't know a lot about it. Is there any relation to getting older and getting more frequent UTIs?
1: Not really. Um, so UTIs are another sort of humiliating affliction that women experience. So when women come in with recurrent urinary tract infections, which I treat you know all the time and I can get into sort of the some some more specifics regarding UTIs but when they come in there there is like well I went to urgent care and they told me that I wasn't wiping right and they wanted to know if I was having like weird sexual activity and I'm just like that is so inappropriate and so Uh, Unnecessary to make a woman feel dirty because she gets urinary tract infections. Urinary tract infections have nothing to do with hygiene and they have nothing to do with sexual practices and nothing to do with whether you're wiping front to back or back to front. It is just something that we do not understand. We don't know why certain women get them and other women don't. There are women who get them their whole lives. There are women who get them when they're first sexually active and then don't get them again until menopause. There are women who get their first ones in their 80s. We have every type of presentation and we have no idea why it is that they present differently in different women. What we do know is that they are harmless, as painful and unpleasant as they may be. They cause no damage. There's no scarring of the bladder. There's no damage to the kidneys. They completely resolve once they're treated or sometimes without even treatment. All the organisms that we are infected with come from our own bodies. They don't come from a partner or a toilet seat or a swimming pool. They come from your own healthy, normal microbiome that happens to get into the bladder and not flush out. So a lot of the myths that you that we hear about regarding urinary tract infections really just make our lives miserable and don't help take care of the situation. The problem with them is the only thing we have is is antibiotics. We have nothing else to treat urinary tract infections. The good thing is we could treat them, but the problem is we treat them with antibiotics. So Although we don't know why they happen or how to prevent them, we can manage them. And the management involves antibiotics. And there are three different ways that we can manage them, or at least there are three different ways that I manage them. And my goal in the management is to give patients control over their infections, because that's what's really very upsetting, is to wake up in the morning and not know if you're going to be miserable, or if you're going to feel good. And that's the only thing I can do is to give you the tools that you need to manage whatever's going on until they run their course. Because after three or four infections, you, they tend to run their course and you don't get them for another you know, couple months or a couple of years
0: and when you say tools are you speaking the medication
1: yes so i can give medication so so i can medic- i can provide antibiotics so there are three ways that we use antibiotics in a woman who's having a lot of infections so for example if your friend had seen me and she's gotten like three infections in 3 months and we don't know what the next what the aftermath is going to be right do we know if she's going to get another one or not i would offer her A, she can self-medicate, send a prescription to the pharmacy for an antibiotic. She fills it, keeps it with her. And when she's symptomatic, she can medicate herself twice a day for three days with whichever antibiotic works for her. We decide together which one she should have on hand. And when she's better, she puts the medication away, and she sees how she does until it it runs its course. Some people like cranberry and D-manos and azo and, you know, uva ursi, whatever they want to use holistically, which they can do because they have the antibiotics on hand. So if they want to wait, see if they can flush it on their own, they can do that. Sometimes it'll work. Sometimes it won't. But if it doesn't, at least you have a backup plan, which is the antibiotics when you need them. That's called self-medication. The second thing they can do is take an antibiotic before or after intercourse, and we call that post-coital pill, which is post, that's after, but you can take it before or after. And that's only a half dose of an antibiotic. It's so a full pill, but the, a half dose as a prevention. So for women whose partners are in a different city or they have sex only at certain times, then they may want to do that as a prevention. And the third option is to go on a low dose, that same half dose, full pill, half dose antibiotic every single night for a couple of weeks. If a woman is in such a bad cycle of, of recurrent urinary tract infections that she can't even tell if she has one anymore, we may do that for a six-week period to get her system back in balance and then take her off the daily uh, suppression. We call that suppression antibiotic and put her on either the self-medication, which is the first one, or the post pill, which is the second one.
0: Ah, oh, that's really interesting, and I assume you you usually recommend probiotics with the antibiotics.
1: I do not recommend probiotics; they're not helpful. They don't do anything. There's been a lot of studies looking at probiotics; they don't do anything. I'm um, so happy actually- to
0: hear you say that because they when I uh, every time I'm on an anti- antibiotic, a doctor tells me to go on probiotics, and they really upset my stomach no matter which one I take. Mm-hmm. And I, so I don't,
1: I never do it, and I feel like I'm doing something naughty by not taking. No, them. they so really don't do anything. So a lot of studies have been done looking at the effect of probiotics in, in the GI tract, but also in the urinary tract, and they really don't do anything. The way you recolonize your body is by is with food, is nutrition. Food will produce and, and introduce its own bacteria, essentially. So fruits and vegetables and greens will introduce the bacteria that you need. Yogurt, for example, is really, really healthy. And that allows your gut to absorb what it needs to keep it healthy. And the same thing with the vagina. You know, the vagina is full of bacteria and yeast, and it will take what it needs from your nutrition. And that's the healthiest way to keep your, you know, your, you know, bacterial counts where they belong. Oh, that's great. That's so
0: interesting. I'm so happy to hear you say that. Women are having all these procedures uh, to
1: like tighten their vaginas. Yeah. Okay. So that's a whole topic. So this is a really, really interesting topic. It's vaginal, quote unquote, vaginal rejuvenation or vaginal regenerative procedures that are available. There are two types of kind of procedures. There are Laser kinds of procedures, and then there are surgeries that are done to tighten. And the surgeries that are done are cosmetic, and they shouldn't be done. Those are done; they're they're you know money makers. It's like having plastic surgery on your vagina. It's a bad idea unless you have some sort of trauma from childbirth, or if you're incontinent or your bladder's hanging out, and you need the your vagina and you know reconstructed for medical reasons then you should i mean the idea that you would have your like labia altered or your vagina tightened is it it makes zero sense because as you get older and your vagina shrinks because that's what happens as we get older you have no reserve so in 10 years you're not going to be having sex you're going to have a problem so those procedures are cosmetic There are then procedures that are done that manage the actual skin of the vaginal canal. And those procedures can be very effective for women whose vaginas are dry and who are having trouble lubricating during intercourse, which is an aging problem. And that's a hormonal issue. There are different types of lasers. And because it's a cash business and because you can charge women a lot of money for these procedures, they take on all these claims. A lot of the people doing this that are not true. They do not help urinary tract infections. They do not help incontinence or urgency or frequency. They only can help with lubrication. And they should all be done by doctors. They shouldn't be done by an aesthetician or somebody in in a plastic surgery office who's trained on how to do it because these are vaginal procedures that can have consequences. But they're highly, highly effective for women who are really having pain with intercourse, which is a large, large population of women. That is not sexual dysfunction. That's that's called genitourinary symptoms of menopause.
0: Well, this is why I didn't bring it up. Before, because a lot of women that I know do this are doing it with plastic surgeons, and that's why I didn't even think to talk about this. But uh, I, just it's a, it's a, a real
1: um, disser- it's a huge, huge disservice. Because right. and, and let
0: me—are they doing it for them? Are they doing it for their partners? Or what? 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 First of all. First of all, well, I, plastic surgeons
1: should ha- be far away from the vagina. So should dermatologists. This should be an area that gynecologists and, and urogynecologists focus and specialize in because this is a functional part of the body. This is not an aesthetic part of the body. It is a functional part of the body. So these should not be done by anybody who doesn't fully understand the pathophysiology of the vaginal canal and the skin of the vagina. This is done because as women a- in age or women who've had breast cancer and who have zero hormones, their vaginas are dry. They're itchy. They burn. It's painful. They can't have intercourse. Some of them, even without intercourse on a day-to-day basis, they're extremely, extremely uncomfortable because the skin has been so deprived of estrogen. And these treatments change their lives. They're completely... Life changing. It's for them, and of course, their partners. Because if they are pain, in pain, they don't want to have sex. But this is like this is like a, a huge, huge thing, and it's not really it's not really discussed. And a lot of the women and the, uh, that that deal with sexual dysfunction don't even address this. This is what sexual dysfunction, this is what it is. So if you're 52 years old and you've been married for 30, 30, you know, 25 years and your kids are finally out of the house and you don't get your period anymore and you feel great and you want to start, you know, living your life again and your vagina itches and burns and hurts. So it's That's, not that it's
0: loose. And I mean, I, I like no. I, I hear women bragging that they have a vagina of a child now and, and it's as tight as it ever was. And I'm like, well, I, but
1: who why wants that? Why, I are, that? why?
0: Why are you? Who are you doing that for? Like, it's
1: <laughs> not good. That is not right. what you want. You want a, a healthy 52 or 45 or 40 year old vagina That's not in pain, that doesn't bleed when you have sex, that doesn't itch and doesn't burn. That's what you want. You don't want a vagina of a 12 year old. That's disgusting. That's (laughs) disgusting, right? I
0: actually like to hear from listeners, and I will not judge you. I swear to God. I'd like to hear if you've had that procedure because I I want to, you know, I'm the type of person that. I, I like to understand things, and I, I really try not to judge anybody. I want to know, like, what 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 is the reasoning?
1: There are women. I will say there are women who, after childbirth, their vaginas can be open. You know, the 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 vagina tears in many cases, or right. Oh well, that, of course, that's, right. And that's they the, feel open, and yeah. there's a feeling. So there's a difference between a traumatic sort of re- result, a result of trauma, like child. Birth, which is clearly a traumatic, yes, not emotionally traumatic, but physically, right? Yes, the baby comes right through and tears everything apart, and your bones, by the by the way, your pubic bone separates during childbirth, so everything opens and stretches, and often the result of that is that the bladder can drop into the vagina, and you can wind up with incontinence issues, and as you age, as we all age, those conditions can get worse, and those conditions can get better, but if they worsen. They get treated by specialists who understand the pathophysiology of the bladder and the bowel and the urethra and the vagina. And then there are, you know, plastic surgeons that do a little nip-tuck because they think it's going to look good, and those are not legitimate surgeries. Right. So, of
0: course, what you just mentioned is obviously very legitimate. A lot of women have had that problem, mm-hmm. and, and and absolutely... That should be fixed. Um, I, I, I just, I, I think it's kind of becoming this like weird trendy thing too. You have to go to somebody
1: yeah. who understands this right. and says like, yeah. "What are your symptoms? Let me examine you. Let me see what's going on. This is what your options are." And it's right. a medical thing. It's not a you know, it's, 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 it's not frivolous. It's not like having a facial or Soon, soon there's going to be like vaginal Botox to make your vag look better. Right. Or better yet, there's scrotox to make the scrotum look better because they need a lot more work than the vagina. Oh, totally. (laughs) So that's what we're going to do. Right. But you know, the the idea that women are sort of repulsed by the way it looks, it doesn't look good and it like smells bad. And it's like, no, it doesn't. It, It looks normal. It should feel great. Sex should feel great. Whether you're 50 or you're 60 or you're 20, it should feel great. And if it doesn't, then it could be addressed by somebody who knows what they're doing. There should not be an assumption that is in your head. Sex is a very mental experience you know it's a very emotional and mental and all that stuff but there is a major physical component to sexual activity that cannot be overlooked in women. all right we're gonna do a fun game of urology myths uncovered
0: okay <laughs> so I'm gonna read it to you even though you wrote them and you're gonna tell me uh, you're going to explain them so number one is drink a lot of water to maintain bladder and kidney health.
1: So I touched on this earlier. No, water is it has zero nutritional value. Water should be consumed with food because that's the way nutrients get absorbed in the food is with fluid and with water. So water with your meals and then free water that you're just drinking, especially bottled water that has zero minerals and no fluoride and none of the good things that you need in water, really does very little. It just, it just goes right through you. You might as well just pour it in the toilet. So water is not healthy for maintaining your bladder and kidney health. Okay. We kind
0: of touched on this, but incontinence is an inevitable part of aging.
1: We already st- talked about that, right? Yeah, no, you don't right, have to be afraid
0: Right. Right. Okay. I just wanted to double check cuz right. <laughs> uh you, you know, so people might believe otherwise. Um water helps you lose weight. You touched on this also. It's it, that which it, it's so baffling to me cuz I feel like anytime you go on a diet, you're told mm-hmm. to drink tons and tons and tons of water to lose weight.
1: Right. But that doesn't make any sense. First of all, fat is not water soluble, right? So you can't melt right. away fat by drinking water. Secondly is it bloats you, makes you feel full and bloated. The way you lose weight of which, you know, there are a million diets out there, but essentially you drink, you eat small meals throughout the day. So you, you remain satisfied and water will give you a false sense of fullness. And then you just feel empty. Plus you go to the bathroom all the time. But drinking a lot of water, you will not lose weight. You okay. lose weight by not eating. That's how you lose right.
0: weight. <laughs> by, by sewing your mouth shut. Is that exactly. how you lose weight? Cutting calories. <laughs> this one
1: I like. Urine should be clear, not yellow. That is not true. Urine should be yellow. It should have a yellow tinge to it. As a matter of fact, when you wake up in the morning, if you've slept a long night, you'll notice your urine is really concentrated, almost an amber color. And that's because a lot of... The water it has been absorbed from the urine, so it should be yellow, not clear. If you're drinking water to make your urine clear, you're drinking too much.
0: Oh wow! So, uh, by the way, I teach my kids this, so I've been teaching them the wrong thing, because I'm always like, I, my kids don't drink any water, and I'm like, y- y- if you got it, like your urine should be clear. That's how much water you should be drinking. So, and I always assumed when your urine was really dark in the morning, it was because your body hadn't been
1: hydrated through the night. So right, because you're sleeping. Matter. You're supposed to sleep right. through the night. That's why yeah. kids kids sleep through the night. Most of them, they don't drink water all day long, right? They're busy. They're running around and they're playing and they're in school and they don't have time for that. So they're not, yeah. you know, torturing their bodies with, with water. And that's why they sleep. I like this one. You have to urinate as
0: soon as you get the urge or you will get a UTI. I know we just covered UTIs, yeah. but... You know,
1: a lot of people think that. So this is very Pavlovian. The more you go, the more you go. So if you train yourself to urinate every time you pass a bathroom, as soon as you see the bathroom, you're going to have to go. And that's not great because then you're urinating constantly. And that's not good for your bladder. Your bladder should fill and empty. It shouldn't always just be, you know, trying to evacuate. So urinary tract infections are not caused by holding urine. They're caused by some unknown micro, you know, molecular disruption of the of the bladder lining that has nothing to do with how much you hold your urine. Okay.
0: Hormone replacement therapy is good for bladder and vaginal problems in menopausal women.
1: So, hormone replacement therapy is for um, it's like where you take systemic hormones, so they get into your bloodstream. So, either pills or patches or gels that you rub on your skin in order to increase estrogen levels during menopause. In general, those systemic therapies do not impact positively on the bladder. They don't do much at all for the bladder or the vagina. If, if hormones are necessary, if, if, if there's a sense that, the, that there's a correlation between low hormones and bladder or vaginal issues, then you, you, you use local cream. Or suppositories. So, that estrogen that's delivered into the vaginal canal is very effective for bladder and vaginal problems. But going on, you know, estrogen orally is not usually nearly as effective. And it has some, you know, potential downside.
0: Well, I do not want to take more of your time. You have been so generous and wonderful. Um, but I would love you to tell the listeners about your a book with the amazing title, A Seat on the
1: Isle, Please, and um, where they can find that. So yeah, I wrote a book on, on urinary issues in women because there's so little information out there and there's a lot of information, of course, online that is not always based in scientific evidence, which is what, how we tend to like to treat our patients. So I wrote a book for lay people. It's, a, it's extensive, but hopefully informative. And it's on Amazon. You can just get it on, you know, on, on Amazon, which is where it seems like we get everything these days. everything everything all
0: right well uh, anyway thank thank you you so so much much for
1: having me yeah and by the way um
0: uh, I'm going to be calling you soon because I think I need an
1: appointment. Okay, oh, anytime.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anytime. And I, I also just said, I, I yesterday sent a friend uh, to you, so she'll be making an appointment as well. But um, th- this was great. And I hope uh, for all of you, this was informative. And obviously, Dr. Kavler's book, as she said, is on Amazon. And if you have any questions, uh, Dr. Kavlar, are you okay with me forwarding any questions from the listeners after the show?
1: Yeah, though, they could email me directly. Dr. Cavaller, K A V A L E R, at total Thank you. That's very nice of you to offer that up.
0: Everybody, I am so excited that you, you sat and listened to me again for another hour. So thank you. And uh, I hope to bring you another great show next week. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to give yourself permission and know that you are not alone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Reviews are always appreciated. And you can reach me by email at it's not a crisis at Gmail, Instagram, it's not a crisis podcast. And please join our Facebook group as well. Until next time, just remember, it's not a crisis.